Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll hear about the role of integrative medicine in pain management. I often have those patients follow up in our integrative medicine center because then there we have um, resources and time to talk about many of these other options to help treat pain other than just medication. Then we'll explore whether there's a link between talcum powder and ovarian cancer. Out of this pooled um, meta-analysis they did in 2016, five out of the eight studies showed an association. And we'll meet a physician scientist at Upstate who is giving back to the nation where he was born, Afghanistan. We can educate the Afghan in this regard. And when Afghan girls have education, they will be able to give them independence. All that and a selection from our Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll explore the use of talcum powder and whether it can cause ovarian cancer. Then we'll talk about improving education and healthcare in Afghanistan. But first, we'll learn how integrative medicine can help in pain management. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Pain is an issue for a variety of patients for a variety of reasons. Here to discuss how integrative medicine may be helpful is Upstate's Dr. Caitlin Scarlett DeLuca. She's an assistant professor of pediatrics specializing in rheumatology, and she's involved with the Pediatric Integrative Medicine Center, and she's here to talk about pain management. So thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Amber. Let's start by talking about um, the causes of pain. Um, Injury and illness, certainly, but um, there's other um, psychological factors, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, I think a big um, thing to you know, to start talking about, to introduce this topic is the differences in pain. You know, there is acute pain, which is a normal part of the human experience. Um, You know, everybody experiences it at one point or the other. It often occurs after injury, um, surgeries, um, different things like that. And um, so acute just means sudden. Yes. it, It happens quickly or whatever. It happens quickly and and appropriately. You know, the body responds to injury and, um, you know, the body has a natural healing process. And often with acute injury, there's visible components such as edema or redness or warmth around the injury site. And um, it's treated biomedically. Um, But then there's another kind of pain called chronic pain. And that pain is pain that's persisted beyond the normal period Um, of healing. Um, Usually it's several months um, after an injury happens and your body, um, one's body is not having a normal physiologic response when this chronic pain ensues. So something has gone wrong with the nociceptive receptors, something's gone wrong with the peripheral or central pain processing systems in somebody's body. And, um, and the mechanism is, is not right either. Often uh, the tissue is chronically inflamed or chronically injured, um, sending a recurrent signal of pain. The neural pathways themselves are actually disrupted. Now, do, um, is the pain experience, is it different in children than in adults? 
Um, the pain, we, we see chronic pain in children as well from, you know, from a non-inflammatory process. Um, we might not see it as much as we do in the adult population, but we, we definitely see these chronic, um, these chronic pain syndromes in children and adolescents as well. Do children express their pain differently um, than adults do? They can. They absolutely can. They can have behavior changes. Um, they can, you know, uh, perform, you know, differently at school. Um, they can act out. They can have sleep problems. Um, you know, all kinds of different behaviors can can manifest from um, a child that's having a chronic a chronic pain. Well, and certainly some of your patient population doesn't speak yet. So are you having to discern different types of cries and and things of that nature to determine if someone's, if a, if a baby's in pain, say? Uh, we do. And uh, we take a lot of the information from parents as well, because as we all know, parents know their children best. Um, so we take a lot of information from parents and uh, we ask about behaviors and um, performances and that kind of thing. Um, and we see, we see pain in, um, in what I do in our rheumatology clinic, as well as our integrative medicine center. And in rheumatology, some of the diseases that you deal with, pain is a big part of it, right? Absolutely. And many of those rheumatologic conditions, there's a reason for the pain, though. There's an actual um, reason. It's, it's um, you know, an inflammatory response to whatever condition, whether it's juvenile arthritis or dermatomyositis or, um, you know, we have, even have patients with something called hypermobility arthralgia and patellofemoral syndrome. Um, but then, you know, sometimes there's non-inflammatory um, pain syndromes, and uh, we often see those patients, too, in, in our rheumatology center. And after we've ruled out um, a rheumatologic condition that might be causing the pain, I often have those patients follow up in our integrative medicine center because then there we have um, resources and time to talk about many of these other options to help treat pain other than just medication. I definitely want to talk about the integrative medicine center, but first let's talk more about, um, in, in terms of pain, um, does stress play a role in contributing or causing pain? Oh, absolutely. Stress has a big part in contributing to pain. Um, you know, stress, um, any kind of mental health problems can, um, can kind of add to um, whatever pain processes are going on. So um, a child whose, uh, you know, home life or whatever is stressful, may, that may show up as pain in, in the child, right? Yes, it can show up as pain or it could um, add to, um, you know, a pain syndrome that's already there. So let's talk about what integrative medicine has to offer in the way of um, stress reduction or um, pain management, um, particularly for children, because that's what you focus on, right? Absolutely. Um, well, there are many, many options in, um, in, in, with integrative medicine for pain um, and pain syndromes. There, um, you know, in my clinic, we, um, we talk about everything from nutrition and GI health, um, because that's a very, very important part um, um, part in, in, in pain, um, as well as um, botanical and dietary supplements. We talk about manual medicine, movement therapies, and even some traditional Chinese um, medicine therapies such as acupuncture. Um, we spend a lot of time talking about mind-body medicine. So things such as guided imagery and music therapy um, can really, really help patients with, um, with pain, as well as with stress, stress and anxiety that can add to the pain. Um, other things are clinical hypnosis is very helpful, um, biofeedback therapy as well um, can all help with, um, 
with pain. Now, are these things that are meant to help um, immediately or over the long haul? Um, it depends on what it is. So a lot of them can help over the long haul. I like to think of a lot of these things that um, I talk about my patients with as tools. So I kind of put it in um, in this way, that I'm teaching them tools that they can put in their toolbox, their toolbox that they will have throughout their whole entire lives. And when they are coming across a problem, such as pain, also stress, anxiety, um, uh, you know, things like that, sleep trouble, um, they can pull out each tool and, and use it appropriately. Um, so we do a lot of education uh, regarding all these therapies for our patients. Other um, therapies can help um, quicker though. So um, I do some teaching about certain yoga poses that um, can kind of, you know, might help with um, uh, pain right in the moment or stress right in the, in the moment. Um, our nurse in our integrative medicine center, Vicki Keeler, performs a couple energy therapies. One is called healing touch. Another is called reflexology. And uh, usually our patients feel much better, uh, no matter what's going on, uh, right after those sessions end, which is really, really nice. And, you know, they come back for more. Um, so it depends on, you know, what therapy we're talking about. Interesting. Well, uh, this is HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Upstate's Dr. Caitlin Scarlett DeLuca. Uh, she's a specialist in pediatric integrative medicine. Um, and before the break, you mentioned that nutrition has an important role in pain. So I wanted to get you to elaborate on that. Or does that sure. Are you saying that there's certain things that we can eat um, that either contribute to the pain or that would help? Oh, absolutely. So just a little background on that. Of course, digestion and nutrition play key roles in, um, in regaining and maintaining health. So good nutrition depends on good digestion and good absorption of the nutrients from our GI tracts. Um, you know, the gut is colonized by a vast uh, community of microbes that have important effects on uh, many physiologic systems in our body. And so in thinking in that way, in treating pain patients, normalizing our gut function is very essential. Um, things like stress, you know, whether from our everyday life or stress from pain can dramatically actually change the gastrointestinal environment. Um, there's a lot of research going into the gut microbiome these days. It's very, very um, interesting and we're finding it's very, very powerful in helping many conditions. Um, now the thing about chronic pain is a lot of patients with chronic pain, um, they're living with the stress that actually is caused by their pain and they have many disruptions in many aspects of their lives. And um, a lot of times we see um, these patients, um, their nutrition uh, becomes very less than optimal because of all of these other things that they're trying to deal with. And uh, sometimes they uh, turn to foods that are actually pro-inflammatory and nutrient poor as their primary source of food. And that just adds to the whole cascade of disrupting the gut microflora and, um, you know, adding to their problems, actually. So I always like to focus, um, when I talk about diet and nutrition with many of my patients, and these are patients that have non-inflammatory conditions as well as inflammatory conditions, but a focus on an anti-inflammatory way to eat is, um, is the best way to go. And you can call it an anti-inflammatory diet. I always say I don't like the word diet itself, right. but diet in the way that that, um, you're just eating to, to live and to create your, the healthy environment of your body. We are actually what we eat, which is amazing. So yes, there are 
many foods that are um, that fight inflammation in the body. So tell me if um, if you're feeling bad, you know, some people crave the traditional comfort foods, um, macaroni and cheese, um, potatoes and gravy. I don't know. Those are probably right. not on your list of foods to eat. No, right? no, not really. Um, but I do like to say, of course, everything in moderation. Sure. But like eighty to ninety percent of um, of the focus of an anti-inflammatory diet should be, um, you know, whole healthy foods, a lot of vegetables, um, you know, fruits and vegetables, plant-based proteins, nuts, seeds. Um, you know, healthy fats, fats from avocado, fats from nuts, um, omega-3 fatty acids are wonderful and, and, and very, um, um, they're very um, anti-inflammatory. And then, you know, there are certain, um, there are certain foods that are, that have a very, po- very, very potent um, uh, anti-inflammatory effect, things such as garlic and ginger, cinnamon, turmeric is wonderful. Neat, neat. Well, let me ask you about some of the other services that you um, ticked off that are offered through the Pediatric Integrative Medicine Center, Um, hypnosis, um, guided imagery, yoga. Are these things that have um, been proven, are they interventions that have been proven to be helpful? Yes, there is much research on all of these things. There's um, a body of research on hypnosis itself as well as guided imagery. Um, Yoga has a lot of research behind it. uh, you know, the manual therapies have some research behind them. Um, so things like Tai Chi, um, uh, osteopathic manipulative medicine, and chiropractics are two types of manual medicine that have um, a body of research behind them. Even things such as music therapy, which seems so simple, and art therapy, um, they both have bodies of research behind them. Um, and then there's acupuncture. Acupuncture has um, some research behind it, but acupuncture itself has been used for um, thousands of years to treat many conditions, and, and pain is one of them, pain and, um, and drug addiction, too. And so, say, music th- if music therapy doesn't work for someone, perhaps one of these other things, you, you call them tools. Yes. Um, so you, you have a bunch of things to offer. Absolutely. And um, I find that some of my patients gravitate towards one thing versus another, and that's fine. But I like to kind of talk about all of them with them eventually over time so, so they have options. Neat. Now, is this um, Pediatric Integrative Medicine Center, is this only open to upstate patients, or how could someone listening find out more information if... If they're interested. Oh no, not at all. Um, of course, we have many of our upstate uh, patients referred, um, you know, from other um, uh, other other colleagues of mine uh, throughout our department. Um, but anybody can uh, be referred to our pediatric integrative medicine center. Okay. And then, um, lastly, are these integrative therapies ever paired with medical treatment? Sometimes they are. Um, so um, yeah. So obviously, a lot of my rheumatology patients require medications. Um, you know, that's just sometimes we need medications, obviously, to treat the underlying disease. Uh, but we often pair whatever they need with these, um, you know, integrative therapies. Um, and then sometimes our patients that, you know, aren't our rheumatology patients, something else is going on, is sometimes we, we also use medications, um, again, with these integrative therapies. Not always. Of course, we always try to stay away from medication if, you know, if we can, but, you know, sometimes we do need it. What's the age range of patients that you see in the Integrative Medicine Center? I've seen patients as young as two, and I've seen patients as old as 22. Okay, so the whole, the whole, the whole gamut, gamut, yes, (laughs) which makes it, which makes it fun for us, and, um, 
you know, and it keeps us on our toes and, um, you know, it's wonderful. We're always seeking out new therapies. We're always trying to learn about new things just to help our, um, all of our various patients. Well, good. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you um, explaining this to us. My guest has been Assistant Professor of Pediatrics, Dr. Caitlin Scarlett DeLuca. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, is talcum powder connected to ovarian cancer? On Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Is there a link between talcum powder and ovarian cancer? We've seen news coverage and jury awards that connect the two, but it might not be so straightforward. Here to discuss this subject is Dr. Jennifer Macon. She's an instructor of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate, and she's also a global health fellow at Mass General. Um, I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So we'll get right to it. Um, talc, the mineral in talcum powder or baby powder um, used in the genital area, does that increase a woman's risk of ovarian cancer? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, it is possible that it increases the risk of ovarian cancer. The uh, International Agency for Research on Cancer classifies it possibly as a carcinogen. Um, case control studies, which have looked at over 8,000 cases compared to 8,000 controls have shown that it can increase your lifetime cancer risk up to about 20%. So, yes, but I heard you say it was a possible carcinogen, so there's still some qualification as to whether... There is some qualification um, because, uh, first of all, these um, some of these case control studies have been conflicted. Uh, the majority of them showing an association out of this pooled um, meta-analysis they did in 2016, five out of the eight studies showed an association. And that's just uh, referring to the case control studies. Um, prospective observational studies, including the Women's Health Initiative and the uh, Nurses' Health Study, um, have not shown any association uh, prospectively. There's some debate on whether it's because they didn't have a large enough of uh, study size, but um, right now there's there's no proof of causation. So there's no proof that it actually causes ovarian cancer. So that's mm -hmm. where so this controversy comes. It sounds like there's some studies that suggest there is, and then mm -hmm. there's some that suggest that there's not. Yeah. So what do you tell patients then? Uh, I tell patients that... Um, Using talcum powder in the genital area uh, is not recommended. Um, and, you know, that they should, if moisture odor is a problem, uh, we can investigate the possible causes of that, or they should, you know, pursue other options for um, their hygiene. And we should say, I mean, women might, some women use um, this powder to stay dry or prevent chafing 
but what you're saying is there maybe look into the underlying causes of of the need for that exactly to get to it um are there sort of over-the-counter uh things that you suggest for women that just feel like they're they want to stay dry or uh you know when it comes to uh genital hygiene i really encourage wearing cotton underwear um you can use panty liners if they um, keep you comfortable, but a certain amount of physiologic discharge is normal, and um, you know douching should be avoided. Any chemicals really should be avoided. Okay. Well, let's look at um, talcum powder and what what is it made of? What is it that's in there that's um, possibly causing these these problems? Uh, so talc is a mineral. It's composed of magnesium, silicone, and oxygen. And in its powder form, it's very dry, and that's why it can absorb moisture. Um, and um, the history of it really goes back to the fact that earlier in the 1960s, um, asbestos used to be sometimes found in talc. And with the um, link between asbestos and mesothelioma and some of the similarities between that cancer and ovarian cancer. This is why TELC first came um, under concern as a possible link to ovarian cancer. There's been some uh, really interesting studies around it. Animal studies, um, when they place TELC in the abdominal cavity, it's not consistent in all studies, but can sometimes form precancer or cancer. Um, and there's been studies where, um, this was also done in the sixties where, um, surgeons used to place talcum powder in the vagina, uh, before performing a hysterectomy and they would actually find the talcum in the fallopian tubes at, um, at the end of the surgery. Why would they put talcum in the vagina during surgery or before surgery? Well, the question is if, because at the time it was unknown, if talcum powder can ascend through the genital tract, through the dissolve in the vagina, ascend through the cervix, the uterus, and end up in the fallopian tubes. Okay. And so we know that it can or does. That study showed it. Um, um, there hasn't been anything more recent since then. But um, also there has been uh, ovarian cancer samples where they've found talcum powder present. So it likely can. The, when you said the surgeons would put the talcum in the vagina, was that um, just to, for this study mm-hmm. or was oh, yeah, there was some reason? A, okay. It was okay. a limited study. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I had no idea that asbestos was similar or that mes- mesothelioma shared similarities with ovarian cancer um, and that there was that the asbestos connection. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when people hear asbestos, you I mean, we know that that's not a good thing. Yeah. Um, and asbestos has not been in talcum powder since the 70s in the United States. Okay. All right. Now, I've also read um, baby powder. Not all baby powder has talc in it. Um, some of it's made with cornstarch, right? Or mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, that, But we're well, talking true. only about oh, we're talking only about the talcum powder. Yeah, we're only speaking of talcum powder. With an association to ovarian cancer. Okay. Um, I wouldn't use, recommend using cornstarch oh, candidly either. Neither? Why is that? Uh, it probably can change the vaginal pH and promote growth of uh, the wrong type of bacteria. Wow. So it sounds like there's maybe a lot of misinformation out there or 
people using like home remedies, thinking powders of something that's going to be helpful, but maybe not. I, I think not. Okay. Uh, well, I also wanted to talk with you about ovarian cancer. Um, first of all, let me remind our listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Upstate's Dr. Jennifer Macon uh, about the link between talcum powder and ovarian cancer. Now, ovarian cancer is one of those cancers that uh, doesn't have a whole lot of signs and symptoms early, right? It's true. Uh, so what do we know about the cause of ovarian cancer beyond the fact that some women have linked, or some doctors have linked, um, the use of talcum powder to ovarian cancer. That's not always the case. What are, do we know anything about the cause? That's a really great question because the, and there's a lot of research in this area. They used to think that ovarian cancer, um, the most common types, which is high-grade serous, um, originated from the surface of the ovary. And it was caused likely by the constant insult of ovulation. So um, conditions where you ovulated often and there was injury to the surface lining of the ovary, that was the original theory. Huh. Um, and it's changed now that the origin of ovarian cancer now likely comes from the fallopian tubes. The fallopian tubes, they've identified these precancerous lesions, um, mostly coming from the fimbriated end where there's a transformation zone where, where cells are constantly turning over. And um, they're commonly found in women who are BRCA positive and have a higher risk for ovarian cancer. The mutations accumulate there. And That's those the, the cells probably spill over onto the ovary. These malignant cells. And um, some of the other theories are that ascending chemicals through the vagina um, up the genital tract um, cause toxic exposure over time in the tubes and um, lead to these precancerous and then cancerous changes. So the ascending chemicals might not necessarily be only talcum. There may be some other products or things Certainly that are Certainly not. Yeah, there's concern about dioxin and sanitary pads and tampons. And there's a concern, you know, even things like... Um, pelvic inflammatory disease and STDs and um, inflammation from infections. That they may be contribute to the yeah. risk? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, well, you mentioned the BRCA, the BRCA gene, that's the mm -hmm. breast cancer gene, but um, that's right. I've heard that women with that gene have an increased risk. Increased risk. And so um, things that decrease your, your lifetime risk of ovarian cancer include being on um, oral contraceptives, um, and also having a tubal ligation or having your fallopian tubes removed um, can decrease the risk of ovarian cancer. And um, you mean, and birth control? Being birth on control. birth control yes. helps? Yes, Wow. How Oral does, pills. How does that help? How do the, it's a hormonal thing, right? Mm -hmm. How does that um, Well, the original theory was that you ovulate less frequently, um, but how it controls the lesions in the tube, I, I'm not sure that's known. Okay. But um, so. Do so we have yeah. any screening? Is there any way to screen for it? You mentioned the um, precancerous lesions that have been found in fallopian tubes, but there's no screening for that right now, right? No, there's no screening for that right now. Um, there, there have been large studies looking at screening with 
blood tumor markers and ultrasounds, but unfortunately what happens is ovarian cancer is rare and you end up finding false positives and there's more harmful interventions that come from, from these screening methods. So right now, the most important thing is to know your family history, um, to, um, to, you know, maintain a healthy lifestyle and to be conscious for the symptoms, which are vague, but are abdominal distension, bloating, change in your bowel habits. Okay. Yeah, those are very vague. Um, how is it usually detected? How do you usually find out that you have ovarian cancer? Um, well, and I, we're speaking, I assume, of the most common kind, the high-grade serous ovarian cancer. Um, a lot of women, in, when they're older, in their 60s and 70s, present with um, pain, abdominal distension, and they have imaging, and it, it usually finds the tumor. So it's po- mostly postmenopausal older older women mm-hmm. where this is discovered. If you have family history, it may be younger. Okay. What uh, what typically happens after it's diagnosed? Is it something that can be treated um, surgically or? Um, so high grade serous ovarian cancer is uh, best managed by a specialist, a, a gynecologic oncologist. The um, first step, as long as the the doctor thinks that the tumor can be removed surgically, is to to have an operation where they remove the pelvic organs and they sample the lymph nodes, and they remove the fat pad called the omentum, which hangs from the stomach. And following that, that's followed by chemotherapy. It is. And it, um, is that usually successful? Um, well, most high-grade ovarian, serous ovarian cancer is stage 3 or higher when it presents, and the survival rate is about 30%. So stage 3 or higher, does that mean it has spread Mm-hmm. Or potentially has spread. Yeah, okay. um, it means that it's uh, passed the pelvis into okay. the entire abdomen. Okay. Um, does having had ovarian cancer mean you're at risk for other cancers? And um, I guess the converse too. If you've had other cancers, does that increase your risk for ovarian? Um, so, you know, there there is the genetic link with breast cancer. Um, and actually, now for every woman who is diagnosed with high-grade serous ovarian cancer, the recommendation is to receive BRCA genetic testing. So if that is positive, um, you know, based on your life expectancy and your plan, some women do undergo either higher screening for breast cancer or choose mastectomies. Okay. And uh, for women who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer, what percent of them would you say um, can trace it to talcum powder use? Is, is that well? It's a it's a making a lot of assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're assuming how much of the population currently is using talcum powder. Um, so if you're estimating maybe forty percent of the population uses talcum powder, and you are going with the assumption that twenty percent. Uh, you have a 20% increased risk, um, then you could say about uh, 7% of annual cases are attributable to talcum powder, possibly. But it's a lot of assumptions, um, how much the population is using it. 
you're making the assumption that that 20% is really um, uh, associated. Wow. Well, good to know. Thanks for the information. My guest has been Dr. Jennifer Macon, an instructor of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, Afghanistan and how a physician scientist at Upstate is giving back. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Dr. Mobin Karimi is an assistant professor of microbiology and immunology at Upstate and a native of Afghanistan who is giving back through a project we invited here, him here to talk about. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start by asking about your background. Um, you were born in Afghanistan. Um, yes, I was born in Afghanistan and I went to medical school there and I came to uh, Stanford, California, where I completed my medical training, and I obtained my PhD from University of Massachusetts, and oh. I did my postdoctoral training at the University of Pennsylvania, okay. uh, and then I came here in July 2017 as a came here professor. to Syracuse. Yes. Okay. Well, um, you spent some time in refugee camp. Yes, right? I grew up in the refugee camp. Um, from what age? At the age of ten. Okay. And then um, you worked in a war zone. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So at the very young age, I lost uh, most member of my family, and uh, is most Afghan. We became refugee between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Living in the refugee camps um, was uh, was hard. But I went to school there, and my objective is was to complete my education, go abroad. Um, in the refugee camp, there was an English newspaper. I worked there at night to learn English, and um, uh, th- there was no uh, c- compensation for my work, but it was uh, primarily to learn English. And I used the language to get a job at the International Red Crescent. International Red Crescent is like uh, Red Cross. Okay. But in the Muslim countries, they call them Red Crescent. And uh, my job was to take um, surgeons nurses and um, general physician from the border region between Afghanistan and Pakistan to inside Afghanistan so they can assess the medical condition inside Afghanistan. Okay. And uh, one of that trip, we were traveling to, from Afghanistan, from Pakistan to Afghanistan. Um, we, our, jeep, our car was attacked and we lost two surgeons, and I was wounded, so I was transferred to Germany for treatment. So I spent a year in Germany and went back to Afghanistan and continued to work with um, uh, Red Crescent. And um, Dr. Paul Cutler, who is an American surgeon, uh, live in Palo Alto, California. He sponsored um, me to the United States, and that's how I came here. So you spent a year in Germany um 
uh, during rehabilitation. From yes, yes, some, yes, It sounded right. like some pretty severe injuries. To so, so it went from the from one side of the leg, it come out the bullet to the other oh. side of the leg. So the the bone was pretty much fractured. So in order to make it even, they have to cut the other side of the bone equally, so that I will be even. Otherwise, I will be a few inches shorter one leg wow. versus the other leg. Well, did that experience, is that what sort of um, interested you in medicine and science? Did that? Yes, I am um, interested in medicine was at a very young age. My mom died um, when I was two days old, and I always asked my father and my sisters, where's my mother? Mm-hmm. And my mother died because um, we were twin, me and my sister, and uh, um, I survived, uh, but my sister strangled herself to umbilical cord. And my mom, my, my, by the time they took my mother to the hospital, it was too late. She had excessive bleeding. So I always wanted to become a physician so I can go back to the society and, and help people. Huh. Uh, so it was, a, it was a young age dream, and uh, I succeeded in that. It sounds like it. Thank you. So, and you do microbiology and immunology here at Upstate. Tell me what uh, what you're involved in. What are your projects here? So there, in hematological cancer, there are two kinds of primarily cancer. One happened in the cells there and the periphery that are circulating in your body called either B cells or T cells. And there are a lot of treatments available for them, either pharmacological treatment or also there's a thing called CAR T cells, which was developed in the uh, University of Pennsylvania. But the um, majority of the people don't have that kind of hematological cancer. majority of the people have cancer in the bone marrow. They're called, um, it, it's derived from stem cells. Okay. So what happened if you treat them, the symptom, what happened, the cancer relapsed back. So the, one of the effective treatment for, for the bone marrow-derived marrow derived hematological malignancy is bone marrow transplant. And bone marrow transplant, if you do it for, if you perform it from the relative, that's uh, called HLA or genetically matched the person, there is a less chance uh, that they will that they will uh, engraft it because basically, if you're genetically related and the bone can, the, the cancer is in the bone marrow, it will definitely relapse. There is a ninety percent chance relapse. So we have to perform it from people who are not genetically related. Okay. So the chances are that they will not relapse. Interesting. So in order for bone marrow to engraft, we have to give them some mature T cells. T cells are circulating cells in your body, and they fight against um, bacteria, against uh, viruses, against many things. So without that T cells, the bone marrow will not engraft. And you needed that T cells to eliminate malignancy. So basically, a patient come to the clinic, uh, we give them chemotherapy and radiation, and eventually we, we do call allogenic bone marrow transplant, which is from non-genetically related people. And between 20 to 80% of these people will develop a disease called graft versus host disease. So the, donor, the mature donor T cells will engraft the stem cells into the recipient, and they will also eliminate most of the malignant cells, but they will also attack host because those mature T cells are not developed in the body of the recipient during the development. So it's like a body rejecting? So it, so it will, so since the patients are 
with heavy chemotherapy and radiation, their immune system cannot fight back. So these donor T cells come and they proliferate. They produce this uh, molecule called cytokines, and they also try to kill anything that comes in their way. And the major organs that get uh, damaged are uh, liver, small intestine, and skin. Basically, patients um, who are suffering from Graf-Wurst host disease in a, in a human, their skin kind of falling up hmm. apart. Hmm. But um, organ damage is significant uh, risk for those GBHD patients. So my research is involved since the Graf-Wurst host disease is caused by T cells, mature T cells. You need that T cell uh, for engraftment, and you need that T cells to fight uh, malignant cells. So we modulate those T cells signaling that they will fight the cancer cells, but they will not fight the human normal cells. Very neat. Okay. So we do a lot of uh, engineering in the mouse models, and we do a lot of correlative study with the human p- patient that they have a similar disease. Wow. Well, that's got some promise. Um, tell me about your trip back home to Afghanistan last fall. So the rest of my family and brothers and sisters, they live in Afghanistan. I live here with my own family in Milius, New York. Um, when I went there September 2017, um, after five, six years, uh, I had a hope that Afghanistan would uh, be progress towards prosperity and there will be school, there will be clinics. Um, but the whole district that I live, they don't have a single school. And uh, the, the other point is that Afghanistan has a very, very high uh, infor, uh, infant and uh, maternal mortality rate, anywhere between 40 to 60 percent, mm. uh, just because the lockup uh, medical facilities and the clinics and the hospitals in the areas, there's not many. And the uh, literacy rate? The literacy rate is very, very high, anywhere between 80 to 90 percent. Um, so... As I mentioned earlier, my dream was to become a physician to help hack society in Afghanistan, even though I came to America, but the situation in Afghanistan has not been improved in the past 40 years since my my mother passed away. Uh, So we established um, uh, basically one organization called Education for Afghan Children. It has two purposes. One is to build... um, uh, elementary school from the age of, um, from the from the from first grade all the way to sixth grade, uh, so from fifth from uh, the age of five and all the way to ten, and the second purpose is to build um, a healthcare facility. So the healthcare facilities involved um, training Afghan women to become midwives, and that's one of the good model that has been working so far for us. Uh, because we can't take a doc- doctor from the cities or from outside to work with us inside Afghanistan. So we primarily focus on the women they lost their husband due to war. Okay. So the female population uh, in, some of the, in some countries, when they, they lose husband, they become like a, a property of somebody else. So now we came along and we recruited those uh, women. We gave them six-month training. And after six-month training, uh, if they're interested, we give them six-month more training and total up 18-month training. Uh, so h- here was a female that she was a burden in the society. She considered a property of someone. Now she has a respect in the society. She become a life savior. And, and, and a career, right? And a career. 
So we don't expect anything back from them in return, but we ask them if they can contribute 10% of their time back to the society so they can help us to improve this organization. Uh, so we face a lot of challenges. Um, we apply to USAID for ad uh, to to fund our project, um, but that didn't go well with the with the society. So what we did is we, uh, we we talked to the tribal elders in the community, and the tribal elder assured us that they will work with us. So we have a five member uh, council of the tribe. And they pretty much run the organization, and they pretty much uh, uh, agree to all of our, uh, the th everything we ask for it. Um, we also ask the Taliban to not harm us and give us the permission to educate Afghan boys and girls. And we specifically wrote this in the application that girls will be educated. And so, also, how do you just ask the Taliban? It, it, it is um, it's very interesting because. Uh, in Afghanistan, in order for everything to work, you have to have a support of the tribes. So tribe support is essential. Since we don't have any outside ties and we can ask for donation, for funding from any uh, resources without any attachment, therefore the tribe believed us and we are among the people that um, they work with us. So we... With the tribal elder, we went to the Taliban and they agreed to every demand we ask, especially educating Afghan women to become midwives, Afghan boys and girls. And we specifically wrote in the application that between first grade to sixth grade will be co-education. And they're okay with females? They, they, they are okay with us. They give us a permission and we wrote their letters of approval in our website. Uh, afghaneducation.org and uh, we have their letters and we also went to the government we asked them for their permission to the Afghan government and they also agree with us we also uh, applied to United Nations for um, be a consultant organization Were you surprised that the Taliban is supportive of this stuff? I was really surprised but um, when we talked to them they were I, I was shocked that, that they would be agreed, but they agreed to support our organization and they gave us an official letter uh, that that girls and boys will be educated in this uh, school and also the, also women will be educated in this facility. So it was a surprise, but I think the need is, is so much. Everybody realized that uh, the Afghan society needs a lot of help. And to the, I, I live, I grew up in the rural area in Afghanistan, and I, and the school and the midwife training center has been built in the rural area of Afghanistan. So since there is a lockup, total lockup medical facilities, and in order for the Taliban to function in these communities, they have to have a support from the tribes, and tribe need that helps. Tribe need our help to educate the uh, children and edu educate the Afghan women because if you have a s between forty to six percent infant mortality rate, uh, that that is significantly higher than any part of the world. Well, the the Taliban has the same uh, issues with health care, not ha and having a high infant mortality rate, right, among their yeah, children and among their children. Among so, uh, would some of the Taliban children be at the school too? So we are, since we are not a political organization, um, and we open to anybody who are local living in that area as long as they can commute to our school, 
um, you know, nobody is born to be a Taliban or a government or poor American and anti-American. They're children. They need to be educated. And education is the key for prosperity, and education is the key for the future of Afghanistan. Well, this is very interesting. I appreciate you telling us about Education for the Afghan Children. This is your nonprofit that you've established. Um, my guest has been Dr. Mobin Karimi. He's an assistant professor of microbiology and immunology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. It's, oh, to live with a poet who loves you. Could anything be better? Listen to two poets whose poems reassure their beloveds, imperiled by illness, that they are not alone. First is Jennifer L. Freed, whose work appears in JAMA and the Common Ground Review. Here's her poem, Air. When you called to tell me about the tumors the doctor felt in your womb today, I thought of the way you turned toward me when I come home at night, that light in your eyes, the ease of your smile. And then I saw the curve of your arm at the piano, heard the familiar phrases of your play, mere movement of air singing of you, and how the air eddies and lifts when you walk into my study bringing fresh tea and how the air shifts to fill the stillness when you walk away without talk, without wanting talk to disturb my work. I thought of this house without you breathing in it, rooms undisturbed by anyone but me, and there I turned away from thought, there I could not bear to dwell. Next is psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry and ethics, Ronald Pies, who has written several books on psychiatry, ethics, and spirituality, in addition to his poetry chapbook, The Myloma Years. Here is his poem, Lady of the Lake. Our lake is warm in her shallows this blue July, her shore a tangle of thick milfoil. A mother merganser and her chicks parade along the pier, and large-mouthed bass brush against our legs. This was where you couldn't swim last year. After the transplant, the lake's microbes were your marrow's nemesis. A mile up the road, the beach is closed by a surge of blue-green algae. An official sign warns, treat every algal bloom as a threat to health and life. Thirty years now you've been my wife. Today I watch you slice through clear water with Olympian strokes, beaming your summer camp smile. I dog paddle behind you, eyes peeled for blue-green blooms as I beg the lake for her benediction.
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a new solution to opioid addiction using outpatient detoxification. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.